Welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby with Sam Bygrave, that's me. This is a show about building creative and rewarding careers in and around the world of drinks. My guest on this episode is Sean Baxter. Sean began his working life as a bartender up in Brisbane before moving to Melbourne and eventually getting into the brand side of things as a brand ambassador. It's that experience which stood him in good stead when he and business partners Tim Boast and George Georgiatis began Never Never Distilling Co. in 2016. Since they first released their gin in 2017, they've won numerous accolades and become something of a bartender favorite. Their gin is all about the juniper and they went out there with the aim of making a London Dry style gin that's all their own, but also one that beats the big premium gin brands of London. So in this chat, Sean and I talk about what it took to get that brand up and running, how they began in rather humble surrounds. As Sean says, they were a small distillery on the wall of someone else's property with no running water. And we hear his advice on how one might go about starting a brand today, and we get an idea of what that might cost. It's not a small amount, put it that way. It's an interesting chat, I think, and I know a lot of bartenders out there who would love to launch a brand of their own. There's a lot here for you if that's you, whether it's a spirits brand or another type of business venture. Sean's a bright guy with a knack for storytelling, and there's a lot you can get out of this one. Before we get into it though, I just want to remind you that you can subscribe to the Boothby newsletter at boothby.com.au. We send out three emails a week straight to your inbox, which means we get to skip the gatekeepers that are the big tech algorithms. Okay, so let's get into it now. Here's my talk with Sean Baxter. Sean Baxter, thanks for joining me on Drinks at Work. Sam, you're amazing. I've been wanting to do this for ages. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. Uh, Sean, you're one of the one of the owners of Never Never Distilling Co. You guys have won a bunch of awards. You make some really tasty gin. Uh, but I'd like to get sort of just briefly a little bit of the origin story for you. Like, how'd you get into the industry? Where'd you start? Um, we don't have to go through every place that you've worked in life. But um, yeah, how did it all begin for you? It's only a 20-minute podcast, isn't it, Sam? Because that would yeah. be aggressive, I think, if I went through all the way back to the my pig and whistle days in the Queen Street Mall. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I, uh, I I started off working in, in bars like most bartenders do um, just to earn a bit of extra coin. And then I, I started working in a, um, uh, a nightclub so I could get in. Family nightclub in Brisbane, very hard door list. Uh, and... I figured that if I just worked there, I'd be able to at least see what all the fuss was about. And um, right. <laughs> it was fantastic. Uh, it was a really, really cool experience. There's some amazing sort of uh, hospitality professionals have gone through there. Jason Williams actually was running the bar. Never met Jace at Family, but he used to run the bar before me. And then he went down and managed or started bartending at Ginger in Melbourne. So there was this, right. always this aura, I guess, in that space of fantastic sort of bartenders coming through. Mm. Um, I moved to Melbourne and started bartending down there, mainly probably to get away from a few uh, vices that I had developed in Brisbane <laughs> and start afresh somewhere else. And, well, this um, is a, a Brisbane quickly, bartender thing, right? You all moved to Melbourne at some point. It is. It, well, at that stage, I still remember you, know, you couldn't really work on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday because nothing much open. So mm. I remember moving to Melbourne and suddenly I was like, I can bartend seven days a week. This is outrageous, you know, and right. you could have your choice of anywhere. It could be a cocktail bar, it could be a nightclub, it could be a pub, whatever. And it was – um. You know, I was just, a, I just, I still remember walking down the steps at Gin Palace and going, this is amazing. This place mm. is, this city is outrageous. So I, I, I quickly moved there and actually fell into um, uh, a lot of work as a, as a, as a trainer there just to, uh, to earn a little bit of extra cash. Um, so I was working for uh, Sven at Behind Bars pretty quickly, delivering uh. some of their bartender 101 sessions and, and, and loved it, really enjoyed it. I think it was a bit of the drama student in me that enjoyed um, the, the performance, enjoyed telling a story. 
yeah. and I found it was a it was a lot of fun and uh, it was a good supplement I think to my largely quite average bartending abilities. So it was, um, <laughs> yeah, I I enjoyed that sort of part and I, I quickly fell into into ambassador work and that's where I I, uh, I found myself working in in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, Skipped to meeting my beautiful wife, uh, who was obviously my girlfriend at the time. I didn't just marry her. I was, no? she, I was, okay. uh, <laughs> I was, I, I was dating her in Melbourne, and she actually suggested that at one stage she wants to move to Adelaide and 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 be near her family, and that got the wheels ticking in my head as to what I might do down there. Mm. Um, it also got a few wheels in some of her friends' heads ticking as well. Tim was good mates with Cassie. Uh, Tim both. Cassie, yeah, Tim, yeah. our head distiller. Yeah. They went to school together, um, uh, and and effectively, he knew that I was in the industry. He had kind of had this sort of understanding and ambition to start a distillery, and uh, quite early on, he got in my ear about this idea about let's um, let's start a business together. He was the one who understood Adelaide's very like small small so so there's lots of <laughs> lots of like there's this question that you get down here is like where you went to school because ultimately you know somebody in that circle very very quickly right. um, so george and tim went to uni together uh, they studied the same thing um and uh he was very aware of george's skill sets credible uh, incredible um businessman and he wanted to get him on board, and, and George was keen for a, for a, a bit of a a bit of a change, I guess, in his direction. He was working in Sydney as a in finance, and wanted to move back to his home in Adelaide, and mm-hmm. I think do some of the same things that I was interested in: start a family, settle down, and, and a bit of a change in lifestyle. And together in mid twenty sixteen, we all got together and decided to um, decided to start Never Never. Right? Did you guys gel instantly? Was there sort of a little bit of you know? Was it easy to get along with? Like, because you, you're going in with these guys, you don't really know. I think it was the best that we weren't, you know. And like, that's this this sort of thing about <laughs> getting involved with mates. You know, sometimes you sort of you struggle telling people that their ideas are shit or that you know that mm. that's not a great great sort of way to do a certain thing. And we were just pretty upfront with each other because we weren't mates. We were sort of acquaintances. We knew each other, you know, well enough to trust each other. And I think that was the yeah. most important part. But Tim and I, even though we were, you know, our wives were best mates, but we weren't. We sort of just hung out at the back of parties and sort of, you know, <laughs> had a beer and like, are you going there? You go on. And him trying to work out what the hell a, a Johnny Walker brand ambassador was and me trying to work out <laughs> why he was, you know, distilling booze in his shed. So yeah. it was kind of like this interesting, um, interesting dynamic. I still remember when he gave me the very first little sample of stuff that he was making and I didn't know he had made it. He just gave it to me, and I was. He said, "What do you think?" And he sort of like trapped me into it. I tasted. It. I was like, "Oh, it's a bit, you know, it's it's all right. I don't know if I. It's okay because <laughs> I made it in my shit. I'm like, oh yeah, it's cool. No, it's good. That's mm. that's um, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was fun to sort of watch him go through that, and then and then yeah, we we decided to start this business together. Um, you know, and started producing. I guess in the middle of 2017, after buying a a still uh, from Spark Brew in Melbourne, which was which was, I guess, the whole start of the process. Mm, and the uh, sort of, not the tagline, but the idea early on then was that you were, a, you were a distillery like on a wall inside a shed in someone else's, in someone else's facilities, right? Yeah, that was, that was sort of, it was a hard start. I'm not going to lie. It was like <laughs> distilling in a, it was literally distilling in a student like garage. Like mm. every single time you like wanted to do anything, you had to pull out everything else so that you could actually access the still it had no running water. I think we're the only distillery in the Southern Hemisphere that had no 
had no running water, which is just, like we'd have to hand lug water from across at the um, at the brewery, which was twenty meters down the road. Mm. Um, we'd have to run pipe. We'd have to run hosing to run the still. So it was just <laughs> the toilet was out of train spotting. You know, like it was just yeah. an absolute. <laughs> it was an it was an absolute uh, hovel, but it gave mm. us our start. Like the guys at Big Shed were such fantastic people to work with, and. Um, you know, I was, I was, we were always really excited to be able to go to work and do this thing that was quite, quite exciting and creative, especially the other two boys. Like I had come from a, from a, I guess a hospitality in- industry background, but these guys were sort of setting off on a completely different adventure for them. And, mm. and that, and that is really, I, I guess, where the, the whole idea of never, never came from. It was this idea of stepping into the unknown about testing your metal, about, about giving it a nudge about pushing yeah. all your chips into the middle of the table and, and having a crack. And, and that's really the uh, that's the thing that I'm the most proud of those two. You know, they re- they're the ones that sort of turned their back on security and safety and, and gave it uh, a real push into something <laughs> that was very foreign to them. You're from the bar world. There is no security or safety. So, you know, you were, no, you were screwed I've been anyway. doing it the whole life. <laughs> what, where, did the, where, again, mate. <laughs> where did the uh, the branding and because the, the, like the visual identity for Never Never is quite strong um and you know there's some sort of storytelling around it where did all that come from was that a collaboration between all three of you did you engage outside sources to like help with that sort of process well we've always sort of done everything in house with the 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 third the fourth person really of the of the of the um of the group was carlo jensen who was our designer and from a visual aesthetic that was that was certainly um what what he brought to the table something that was quite colourful and unique and, and and very different to what everything else. I think when it came to our ambitions as a as a trio in terms of what we wanted the brand to be, it was funny because we bought the steel because it was the cheapest one we could afford, and then we started building uh, various botanical recipes off it. And we were trying to work out what was going to work. Like we didn't want to kind of set off with this ambition in. In, in you know front of mind, and then realise that we had tried to force something that wasn't quite right. Mm. Um, the beautiful thing about the still is that it had a vapor basket that gave us a lot of flexibility in terms of the, the style. And early on, when we were doing experiments with juniper, we we realised that juniper from the vapor basket tasted very different to the juniper in the pot, and and that ultimately meant that we could kind of have these two variations of juniper going on, which would would create a different palate experience would be an amplification of flavor and style. Mm. Um, and then we added, I'd, I'd heard, you know, through my lots of various training sessions that I had experienced as bartenders that, that steeping was a pretty cool thing to do. So I started steeping with, with Tim in terms of various sort of components. And we realized that adding steep juniper into the pot with fresh juniper and then juniper, in the vapor basket created this really unique dynamic when it came to juniper character and, Mm. And that was kind of like the secret sauce that sort of set us up. And, um, you know, we had this brand identity about starting this juniper revolution because at the time there was very little juniper forward gins in Australia. Um, and our new bartenders wanted to work with them. That was the, that was mm. my audience. That was largely the, um, the people that we wanted to kind of speak to, um, the most because I knew that bartenders like making great gin and tonics and drinking great Negronis and, and drinking great martinis and a juniper forward style was always going to, um, I guess, appeal to them. Yeah. Uh, I, 
the bigger problem kind of came from when we started to try and actually talk about coming on this juniper revolution to people that were not in trade. And the first question we got was, what's juniper? They're like, oh, right, um, got to go back and do the So it's not actually bit. a berry. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's really hard, really hard to get people yeah. to like join a revolution if they've got to ask what they're revolting against, right? So it's sort of, um, yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of, it meant that we had to sort of start to sort of think about our brand a little bit more holistically um, and, and think a little bit more about what we're actually trying to do is, is create as much flavor in the products that we build as possible. And, um, and that was an easier transition, I guess. But we've always been the Juniper guys. We love to fly that flag very high. Yeah. Did, was, was it gin always from the outset? Was it always you wanted to make gin or were you going to consider doing other things? I think you just no. released a whiskey, didn't you? Yeah. We, 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 so I was working as a whiskey ambassador and, and George kind of got me on the hook with this idea of making a whiskey. I was super excited about making a blended Australian style. I thought it was a category that um, had a lot of potential in Australia. Everyone's mm. making single malt. Um, I thought it would be a lot of fun to sort of experiment in that field. I still think it would be a lot of fun. Um, but we quickly discovered how expensive it was going to be and, and <laughs> we, we had started making this uh, gin that suddenly took off. Like it was very, very popular. We thought – that it would be great if it just paid the bills. But the, the way that people responded to the gin in the earliest days of 2017 when we, when we launched the actual liquid in mid-2017 was, was really, really strong. And we had a decision that we had to make as to whether or not we wanted to kind of keep investing in the gin, you know, yeah. do things like build a, build a cellar door, build a distillery door, which came along pretty early on. And um, we jumped at that opportunity. And I think it was the right choice. You know, I, think, I still think it was the right choice as much as I'd love to – still be um you know mm. in the in the in the weeds with whiskey it, it it meant that we could kind of have a very very um unique direction i think through what was a pretty tough couple of years we were able to still operate and and and, and trade um yeah. and it's amazing to sort of see the way that people have responded to the to the gin itself it makes me very proud well a lot of australian distilleries who are producing gin are also producing other things and gin's kind of like the the thing they do to, to get some cash coming in so they can make the whiskey or the rum that they want to do, right? What do you think the yeah. – is there a benefit to focusing in on just the one thing that you do? Um, yeah, I think so. I absolutely think so. Dave Vitale is a mentor of mine from Starwood Whiskey, and early on he um, he was actually one of the, the – uh, the, the the protagonist, I guess, with some of the things like our fearless spirit. I still remember asking him early on um, at an Australian distillers conference, sort of like, what's the one thing that you could communicate about distilling that, you know, the, the one piece of gold advice. And, and he was the one that sort of said, you need to be fearless, which is why we write fearless spirit on our, on our, on our logo to be reminded mm -hmm. about how, how hard it was going to be. Um, but I think when it comes to actually producing two things, he also said it's very hard to chase two rabbits in one field, and that's always that's always stuck with me a little bit. I think it's it's a it's a tough gig. Lots of people can do it, and mm. credit to them. You need lots of cash. You need lots of cash to be able to do it. Uh, right. And we just weren't. I just don't think we were ever in a position where it was realistic for us to kind of do both. And yeah. um, it, you know, we wanted to focus on on creating a really special you know, representation of of gin in the Australian market and. Um, we've always been really comfortable with that decision. You, I mean, it says, you know, established in 2016 on the label, I think, but, you know, you brought the first spirit to market in 2017. Mm -hmm. What's, we're now 2023, what's different now? Would you have to have done things differently if you're launching today as opposed to then? Because, I mean, there was, there was a few, quite a few gins around then, Australian gins, but 
Today it's like, I don't know, there's a million or something like that. It feels like about a million. It's probably about a million, I reckon. Um, <laughs> you reckon? I think so. It's close to it. It's close to it. It feels like. Um, Was it easier, do you think, start then than it is than it would be now? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we had the luxury of being able to sort of look at what the market needed and uh, and we understood um, that an Australian gin that was Juniper Forward had a place. Yeah. And quite quickly after uh, the, the the launch of, of, of Never Never, there was a lot of other sort of Juniper Forward style gins that I guess jumped in that wake. And that was um, fantastic. You know, all, all ships rise on the same tide to an extent when it comes to those sort of flavour profiles. And it was great to be able to sort of see the way that people would respond to what was considered to be a London dry style, a traditional classic London dry style done in a contemporary Australian way. And mm. our ambition was to always do it better than the, the big imported British styles. You know, like oh, we wanted to make a London dry better than the, the, the gin producers in London. And with some of the rewards, some of the, the, the medals that we were that we were winning, it was it was indicating that we were giving it a red hot go. Yeah. I think the big difference today is that the market is very is, is 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 swamped. As you said, there's a lot more product out on shelf. You've got to work a lot harder. You've got to be a lot smarter. Um, mm. And I think you've got to have more money. I think if uh, you genuinely, if you want to make a big crack of it, if you want to actually have a go at becoming an established brand that's picked up by an Australian distributor. Um, you've you've got to really have an eye on your capacity to scale and volume up. If you just mm. want to be a mum and dad distillery and on a you know in a nice part of Australia that sits in a tourist area somewhere and and operate, I think there's lots of room for those sorts of operators. I think there's there's lots and lots of um, capacity to be able to create that destination sort yeah. of distillery. Um, Australia's got some of the most beautiful you know, regions in the world. And, and as much as it thinks like there's a distillery in every single one of them, there certainly isn't. But um, <laughs> I do think that it's it, it, there's opportunity there. But, you know, to be the big scale distillery, there's only a handful of distributors in Australia and mm. um, every single one of them has got one or even two or three gins on their books that are that are all trying to, um, are trying to scale. So I think that's where it becomes a bit more challenging if you're looking at becoming a bigger brand. Right. Do you, do you feel like you know, throwing out a number there that people today might need to spend or have a look at spending to have to create a brand that's going to get some actual cut through and some sort of mainstream success. A couple of million bucks. You know, yeah. like it's, I think, I think, I think if you, like when it comes to, like w- the biggest thing that I would have changed early on about Never Never is I would have looked for more investment earlier. I think we try to do everything ourselves, which is great, you know, like it's still great to be able to, you know, you not you don't want to be in debt. You don't want to kind of go so far mm. into into the red that it becomes that it becomes stressful and and it becomes um, super problematic. But uh, you know, I think I think things that will separate you from from everybody else in the market these days, you do need to have backing and support to be able to make a big impact. And that's if yeah. you want to make a big impact. I don't think you need to spend anywhere near that amount of money if you want to just open up a distillery and um, right. Uh, and and go about your business. You know the tax rebate in Australia is pretty good. Um, it's probably the only good thing about talking about tax in Australia. Getting whacked <laughs> with it every every month and the, the 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 climbing the climbing cost of tax in Australia is pretty obvious. I don't need to go into that. And that's a fairly scary thing when you get your tax bill every month and yeah. um, you realise that you know all your profit pretty much goes into into paying the Australian government. But it's I think I think it's definitely still a viable and it's still growing. You know people are still doing it. I think you just have to be have a realistic expectation yeah. about you know what you want to do and, and how big you want to be. 
Yeah, do you reckon Aquavit's going to be a thing? Is that going to go huge? You guys have got something. <laughs> oh, Aquavit's <laughs> definitely going to be the next thing. We've been trying for a couple of years. I mean, like Dark Series I is fun for us. That's where we kind of – yeah, it's delicious, right? I love it. Like it's yeah. it's just a bit of – the Dark Series for us and, and little weird products like Aquavit were amazing ways to collaborate. And you talk about you talk about some of the, the luxuries that I had as a brand ambassador – um, relationships that I built over many, many years afforded me these incredible opportunities to work with such brilliant operators, just flavor wizards like MC at PS40, you know, Steph yeah. at maybe Sammy. There's so many. You know, the, Shay Chamberlain when she was at Black Pearl you know, when we were building an Amaro. Um, like there's so many um, incredible personalities in this in this industry who just know so much about flavor that we always want to learn from and. Um, Aquavit was one of those. I still love it with a little bit of dry ginger ale. It's delicious. There you go. It's going to take off one of these days, just like Riesling. Um, in terms it's of- the Nordics, mate. The Nordics. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got a uh, step into the Never Never like cocktail comp. Is that going on now? So we, we basically run that mid-year um, as, a, as the competition itself. Because I'm interested to know, like, you know, what's the value of a, these cocktail comps these days? There was a time, you know, I remember when I started running about uh, bars, there weren't that many cocktail comps. So you had sort of three or four a year. And then before the pandemic, it was like there was like three or four a month <laughs> or a week. Uh, yeah, they seem to be coming back. What What do you think? What's the use of them? Why do you guys put them on? And what do you you know What do you think bartenders can get out of them for themselves? I think cocktail comps are a really good way of being able to, I guess, give you focus, uh, continue to to learn, uh, and and continue to push yourself. Some of the, the the things that I learned about cocktail competitions is about presentation, is about, you know, consistency. It's about things like cocktail names, like really small things that often I didn't really think about much as a bartender, but when you're being judged on it critically, it, it actually kind of, um, it certainly shifts a, a gear for you. And, of course, when it comes to some of the big ones, the big ones are crazy, you know, like the, mm. like the world classes and legacies, if you win those things now, like there's, you know, it's, it's a pathway of riches in terms of the way that you're able to continue to grow as a, as a professional in this industry. It, it often kind of takes you to another whole level um, yeah. where you're working with, you know, bar equipment and, and other, you know, like you can do whatever you want. Like it's it's quite, a, a, you know, a, a, a different sort of situation these days. What we try to do is, is take it back to a simple thing. Like the, the, comp, the, the competition itself is built around a gin and tonic um, uh, in round one, um, and then round two is built around a three-ingredient cocktail. And the idea is that we just want to champion simplicity in its format. We want to allow our gin to shine, and we want people to understand the amount of focus and attention we put into building a quality product is mm. best on show when you're when you're working with with kind of minimal ingredients. So um, we 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 bring our state winners. We went to New, Ze- uh, New Zealand for the first time across the ditch, so we brought a couple of uh, Kiwis over as well who are going to have have a bit of fun uh, in March during the Fringe Festival this year. So awesome. we bring them all down to Adelaide during one of the, the, the busiest and what I've discovered the most expensive times to, um, <laughs> to put up at an event um, where it's going to be a lot of various sort of challenges across the entire time with no real winner. It's just like there'll be opportunity to win some pretty cool prizes to be thrown wow. in at the deep end um, and to have your skill sets tested in, in quite unique and and interesting circumstances. So I'm looking forward to seeing the way that the bartenders respond to it. Yeah. What's, what's the benefit for you guys as, as a brand and, and why do brands put these comps on in general? What's, what are the, what do you guys get out of it? I think, well, first and foremost, 
you know, it's a great way to engage many listings across the country. Let's not get away from the fact that it's a lot of these competitions are about driving growth and driving volume. But right. you know, we're not we're nowhere near that really in terms of like we would, we'd be lucky to break even on a cocktail competition like this. I think for us, it's an opportunity to engage at another level. Um, to, to bring bartenders down to South Australia to work with them, um, to use a series of mentors as well to, to, to talk a little bit about our industry and talk about the trade and how special it is uh, and really try and, and, and use those, um, those bartenders as, as ambassadors moving forward. We want to show them you know, that we're an amazing brand with, with amazing people behind it. And I think the, the more you empower bartenders and, and hospitality professionals with the capacity to tell your own stories, to tell the story of your business mm. is, is, you know, uh, a, a, a recipe for, for continued growth and continued success. Yeah. Uh, for bartenders who might be thinking about wanting to start their own brand one day, I'm sure it's something that goes through the minds of many people who work with booze. Uh, maybe they want to launch, they, maybe they're going to be the ones who are going to make Acrovit big. What would you do? It. What, would you, <laughs> what would you suggest to them? as, you know, the kind of things that they need to maybe have experienced in the trade or or the skills they need to have kind of come across before they go down that path? I think with anything of this nature, I think with any business, it's important to ensure that you have a really diverse array of skill sets at your, at your sort of beck and call. Um, you know, whether or not you're talented enough to contain them all yourself or whether or not you have to work with other people like me, um, uh, who are able to kind of pick up the parts of, of business that you might struggle with, you know, and I think that's, that's the most important thing. That's definitely the, the reason why Never Never has been successful is that we're all able to, to fill a part of the business that is absolutely critical, um, to success. Uh, I think beyond that, mm. Uh, you have to know your audience. So regardless of what it is you make, you're just going to make sure that you know who you're making it for, you know. And bartenders are absolutely incredible when it comes to being connected to um, the their audience because they're constantly serving them. They constantly um, uh, understand what's popular, understand what's not, uh, or able to sort of see the next particular uh uh, trend before it actually happens so i think that in a way is also something that's that's uh that's very much uh, in the advantage of bartenders if they want to start their own sort of spirit business um and like beyond that just remember that there's so many there's so many producers out there that are really passionate about the, the tiny little thing that they make or the the the, the main ingredient that they make but no one gives a shit about that unless it's able to cater to the uh, to a wider audience. You know, like it's it's all well and good if you've got this weird and wonderful and wacky little ingredient that you want to show the world. But if no one knows what it is or wants it, it's 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 a hard slog. You know, it's a challenging slog to be able to to be able to to sell that product. And I think when it comes to understanding your audience, you've also got to understand what your audience might want and, and mm. what's required and what's needed. And if you're able to build all those things together, I think that you've got the, the best chance of, of being able to be successful. And cash, <laughs> like lots of cash, bring lots of cash. You'll need that. Yeah. Take all the money. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> last question for you. Well, I've got two more questions for you. The ones that I often ask is, one of them is, what do you think are the character traits that you have personally that have kind of set you up for this kind of career that you've gone down? What are the things that have made it easier for you to, to do this? 
Look, it's I'd be absolutely lying to suggest that a career in brand hasn't really assisted, right? Like I still remember like every single time I was learning another person's story, like whether it's Johnny Walker's or Pampero or Tanqueray or all the brands I had the pleasure and luxury of being able to work with, I was just desperate to tell my own story, you know? Like I was really desperate to be able to communicate Every single time I was passionate about these producers that were often hundreds of years old, I was I was desperate to be able to, I guess, do something that was uh, just as, as powerful as, as that, as, as special as that. And uh, I guess that capacity to storytell has been a really important part of why our brand has been able to continue to grow, uh, understanding the, the importance and detail of the way that people engage with your brand um, in every way, whether it's, you know, the distillery door up in McLaren Vale, which is just a spectacular shift from the 16-square-metre <laughs> garage where we started. Um, yeah, it's beautiful up there. People. It's spectacular, right? Mm. Like I mean, we, we celebrate it every day because we know what every square inch. Uh, <laughs> we've filled every square inch too. We quickly realised that we should have made a bigger shed. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, every single person that steps through that space you know, is it, you're not just entering a hospitality venue, you're actually entering a, a way that you're able to, to communicate who you are as a brand and what you stand for. So I think it sort of comes down to my experience working with, as a brand ambassador, understanding the, the reverence that you need to, to have for the way that um, you, you speak about your own stories and the, and, the, and the way that you've been able to grow as a business and to, mm. and to also make sure that there's a clear line of communication when it comes to how you tell that story. Whether it be through your, you know, fantastic artwork on your bottle, or the the way that you um, reach out to bartenders through incredible brand ambassadors, like Shay Chamberlain is a good example of that, or whether it be through, um, you know, the, the the founder team, you know, across the many what different ways that we communicate in our local community. Um, I think it's I think all of those sorts of things build uh, a really important sort of capacity to tell stories really well. Yeah, lovely. Uh, what does what makes Sean Baxter happy when he goes into a bar? What are you looking for? Sam, as a fellow Queenslander, you're very aware of my passion <laughs> for a cold, frosty can of 4X Gold. It absolutely um, agitates <laughs> many, many uh, uh, of Tim and George when I go in, and that's one of the first things I'm staring at. But I'm yeah. pretty lucky, to be honest. Like a lot of people, I, I think you're pretty similar. Like the, the, In terms of the – you can often be satisfied by things that, uh, you know – probably built from a youth, uh, I wouldn't say a misspent youth, but it's certainly a youth, um, you know, in pubs and nightclubs and all sorts of things. You know, I can knock a cruiser on the head as quick as anybody. So I think when it, then there's the other thing where I, where I love, the, I love the, the ability of a bar to take me to Rome or to take me to New York or to take me to Ireland or to take me wherever um, with, with, with absolute simplicity and ease and, and the, the capacity for fantastic service and, you know, beautiful lighting, beautiful yeah. sort of sound textures. There's, there's like, there's something quite magical about, I hadn't, well, a good example is I walked into Gimlet the other day. I don't want to point people out, but I, it's the first time I hadn't been in Melbourne in about three and a half years. And yeah. I hadn't been out to a really fancy bar in a long time since having a couple of kids. And, and just sitting at that bar and, and drinking a martini and there was a celebrity to my left and another celebrity to my right. And I just, it just felt like I could be anywhere in the world. And I love that about great venues. They, 
they just inspire such this incredible capacity for transportation. And for me, it's just amazing. That's beautiful. Uh, it's a perfect place to end it. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, mate. I really appreciate it. What an absolute pleasure, Sam. I've always wanted to do this. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you, Sean. Thanks to Sean again for the talk and thank you to you for listening. If you're enjoying these podcasts, then please share them with a friend. Really helps to get the word out. And give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get yours. I really do appreciate your support. Until next time, this has been Drinks at Work from Booth Booth.